You are listening to Marquette University's COVID Convos podcast. In each episode, representatives from Marquette's STEM and humanities communities will bring you insights into the pandemic that you may be missing. Marquette University is located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The traditional lands of Potawatomi, Ho-Chunk, and Menominee peoples along the southwest shores of Michigami, North America's largest system of freshwater lakes, where the Milwaukee, Menominee, and Kinnikinnick rivers meet and the people of Wisconsin's sovereign Anishabe, Ho-Chunk, Menominee, Oneida, and Mohican nations remain present. Hello and welcome to our first COVID Conversations at Marquette podcast. This is a conversation that is focused around some issues on teaching and specifically on teaching pandemics. I am Leslie Knox. I'm a medieval historian from the Department of History and I teach a class on the Black Death and other pandemics. And I'm Larian Krakow. I'm a faculty member in biomedical sciences. I'm a virologist by training, and so I teach courses on microbiology as well as on pandemics. And I am Brittany Plattick. I'm a professor in the English department, and I teach romantic literature and literature and medicine, and regularly teach a couple of books from the romantic period about pandemics in the 19th century. This summer, I'm developing a new course about the COVID-19 pandemic, and I've been really thinking about what expectations my students might bring about pandemics in general, because for the past four years, I've been teaching a course called Outbreaks, Epidemics, and Pandemics, and I do find that students come to that course with these kind of preconceived notions about pandemics that are actually maybe contrary to the biology of pathogens and how pathogens spread. And I think it was actually in a conversation with you, Brittany, where I came to the realization why my students had these preconceived notions. And I think it's because of all the movies out there, and literature that they may be reading, and these this contemporary stories about pandemics and outbreaks that they're hearing that give them these ideas and assumptions about pandemics. Yeah, so I mean, maybe I can pick it up from there. I, one of the most interesting ones that I know that Lorianne, we had both talked about was students' expectation that pandemics would end, like pandemics end quickly, or that we should see the cure, quote unquote, for COVID discovered, uh, by which they mean a vaccine within the next year. And how interesting that assumption is and how untrue it is historically to how pandemics actually operate. And for me, that immediately signals that students are getting this idea that uh, the pandemic will be over within this established time frame from pop culture. Um, as Lorianne said, we are inundated right now with pandemic stories. And in particular, in the past three decades, uh, we have a lot of apocalyptic narratives that feature pandemic and a lot of zombie narratives that feature pandemic. And I think this is really interesting. And I think, too, the narrative assumption that an illness is something that either ends or you die is quite contemporary, actually. If you look back to the 19th century, where I teach, people were much more familiar with kind of chronic or lingering conditions they didn't necessarily see diseases, including pandemics, as things which, oh, we have a disease, let's find a cure. Instead, it was, I've been diagnosed with tuberculosis, I'm now going to spend the next 20 years of my life wondering if this is going to appear and kill me at some point, or just kind of lingering in it. 
in the early 20th century, when we had really major medical discoveries that actually did sunset to diseases, to use the language of the, I think, really kind of symbolic game pandemic, where you can sort of like get rid of entire diseases, and it's called sunsetting them. For the first time, humanity was able to actually cure things like polio or provide vaccinations for them, which got rid of them. And that became medicine's sort of triumphal narrative of its own progress. And I think students have imported that into the way that we think about diseases uh, because the stories we tell about pandemics either end in a cure, like the, the kind of heroic cure at the end of the movie that is then distributed to the rest of the world, saving it, or more frequently and more darkly, apocalyptic stories like Stephen King's The Stand or a really good recent one, Emily St. John Mandel's novel Station Eleven, where the pandemic pandemic kills almost everybody in the world and there is a civilization collapse. And so we hear that story much, much more frequently than we hear a story that would reflect what's probably going to happen with COVID. It'll be around for a long time and continually have outbreaks and we won't ever really cure it. I think to that point, you even hear in the talk about COVID-19 that we're only going to be dealing with this until we have a vaccine. And while it's true that once we have a vaccine and we are able to distribute it to enough people to slow down the spread, maybe social distancing might be relaxed, but it's not like we get a vaccine and poof, the pandemic is over. We know that we have to distribute this vaccine to enough people to slow down spread. We don't know how long immunity to the virus will last with a vaccine. But also, I think these stories, once you have a vaccine or a cure, that the, the pandemic ends, it kind of leads to this false idea that the pathogen has disappeared from Earth, that it's been suddenly eradicated. And that's not the case. The SARS-CoV-2 virus is still going to be around. And so we will still need to be vigilant about infection prevention for many years to come. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you're both mentioning these things because it's clarified something for me that I see in my class. And so thinking about, you know, we live in this age of vaccine. So polio is less of a problem. Measles had been less of a problem, although it's obviously coming back now with vaccine denial. With the medieval examples of the pandemics, my students are really confident that it was a complete catastrophe and society just collapsed entirely because they lacked modern scientific knowledge and all they had in its place was religious belief. So they had sort of a blind sense of this was God's punishment to them. And so it's really funny to bring together those sort of sureties that our modern pandemic will end, yet the past ones were complete disasters. And so what I do so much in my classes is sort of teach against this narrative and say, well, it didn't collapse, no governments fell, towns stepped in with legislation for quarantine, for burying bodies properly, for regulating travel, all these things that really help in terms of social distancing. But it was, it was absolutely a persistent situation. And I think that's one of the great things about each of our fields where we can go and we can study the literature, we can study the historical record, we can study the biological evidence and see how humans are really responding to these real situations. And to add on to that, one of the things that I wonder, and, and Leslie, maybe you can answer this question, is that I know at least in terms of the 
age that I studied, the 19th century, there is a hard start date for stories in which a pandemic literally kills off civilization. And it is the 19th century, only a couple of decades after the first vaccine was distributed in England in 1803. And I say distributed because British scientists claimed to have discovered vaccines when that was really knowledge that had been, you know, distributed over the rest of the world, especially in Asia and sub in, in India for a much longer time. But what is really interesting about that time in the 19th century is you suddenly get this rash of what are called last man stories where um, a pandemic kills everyone and there's this kind of single solitary figure who wanders the rest of the world after the rest of humanity has died. And people were obsessed with these stories. They retold them over and over. And I actually don't know if there are stories that are specifically disease related that predate the 19th century that imagine an apocalypse like that. I know that there's biblical narratives of plague, but they seem to be doing slightly different narrative work. Right. No, I don't think there are. And I mean, I can give you, you know, sort of the one example. It's an Irish friar, maybe, or it's some monk who, you know, sort of dies while writing his chronicle and, you know, there's nobody left. But I mean, that's really a rhetorical trope. And, you know, of course, Boccaccio's Decameron is the most famous, you know, sort of foundational plague literature. And everybody remembers it like, oh, the society fell apart. Parents wouldn't bury their children. Children wouldn't bury their parents. Some people just partied or the other ones like all ran off and did something. But then they forget the other paragraphs that are there of saying, okay, well, here's how people helped each other out. And here's how they engaged and sort of, you know, social ministry to each other, and there were lawyers coming to take wills, and they buried the dead appropriately. So they really don't have that same modern apocalyptic narrative. And I wonder if the difference is sort of a sort of penitential component to it, that because of the religious belief that runs across religious traditions. So, I mean, Jewish, Muslim, Christian, and be it, you know, the, the Greek sources or the Latin ones, I mean, they all agree that, you know, this is punishment. And so one response to this is to be penitential, to examine your moral life, and are you living better? And I don't know that you get the same thing in the 19th century text. And Laurieann, I mean, you certainly don't see it the same way in 20th and 21st century responses, a kind of medicalized thing. Sure. I mean, we now know that we can actually isolate the pathogens causing these outbreaks. I mean, that was something really extraordinary with COVID-19 was how quickly they isolated the virus and published that genome so that people could get working right away on creating a test and, and working on antivirals and a vaccine. To go off what Lorraine, you were saying earlier about students' expectations. So in addition to students expecting uh, pandemics to unfold narratively in particular ways, there's also a lot of interesting ideas that our students have about what it means to behave properly in a pandemic and how you should behave. And mm -hmm. these are all really culturally and historically constructed. Um, I'm happy to, to start here because the, the most interesting one that I've noticed, yeah. most, maybe the most disturbing, is this idea that pandemics are inherently times for competition rather than cooperation in terms of how we should conduct ourselves. And I don't think that there's a single cause for this, although, you know, 
shiny lights, capitalism, shiny lights. <laughs> uh, there are many contributing factors, but I think one place that we can see this most strongly is in what to me is the kind of symbolic pandemic narrative of the modern era, which is the zombie story. Because in zombie stories, and you know, these have been around for a long time, uh, but really began to gain in popularity over the past 30 to 40 years. And the sort of signal or the, the heart of the zombie story is the idea that the sick are our enemies. They cannot be recuperated. Once you're a zombie, you cannot be made unzombified. The only way to battle that illness is to kill or sacrifice other people. So the idea of a pandemic inherently becomes one in which everyone is pit against each other and the healthier pit against the sick. And it, we see these stories where zombies are killed in order to preserve the rest of humanity. And there's this weird sort of discourse of sacrifice surrounding those killings. It's weirdly martial. And we actually have seen in COVID, disturbingly to me, the idea that, say, we should reopen the economy framed in terms of sacrifice, as if some people just had to die in order for the rest of us to continue. And by the rest of us, people seem to mean the economy. Right. And you also see this idea with individualism and competition and the idea about wearing a mask with the idea that some people are wearing masks thinking that this is to protect them from other people who may be infected which is actually not the purpose of these cloth masks and face coverings which is to protect other people from you and that really kind of goes against the narrative of, of diseases where People don't think about the risk that they are posing to others. They're always usually focusing on the risk that everybody else could be posing to them and kind of instilling this, this fear of the other and trying to preserve yourself, not realizing that you may be posing a huge risk to others. Mm -hmm. right. You just brought up this idea of the other, and that's absolutely, I think, one of the most disturbing things is seeing how quickly that came into discussions of COVID. I don't know why that surprised me. I mean, one of the things with the Black Death um, is you sort of famously have the accusations that the Jews were poisoning the wells. I mean, even though you have people at the time saying, well, that doesn't make any sense because they're dying similarly to our local Christian population, they nonetheless will have that. You'll have lepers accused, sometimes even poor people. And so, yes, it's kind of this natural human response, but it, it's interesting to, to contrast that more with the examples of where people are really helping each other and showing those recognitions. I mean, when you started talking about, you know, recognizing disease, I'm thinking of the famous example of Ean in 17th century England. And so that's the famous plague village where plague came north from London, probably, you know, in fleas and in cloth and from merchants. And this small village decided they would quarantine themselves to, you know, limit the plague to right there. Geraldine Brooks, I think, has written about this really wonderfully in A Year of Wonders, a, a novelization of that. And they do it. I mean, the mortality there is, is kind of crazy high, like 85%, but they do basically manage to stop it. And some of the other surrounding villages, you know, agree to provision them. And so you really do have this example of people working together and they can work together and they don't have modern germ theory, but they understand it in some level. What I wonder is why is that not the predominant story, the story of cooperation? Why are we so narratively compelled by this individualistic approach to pandemic when there are these really inspiring stories we could be telling 
instead? And I don't have a very good answer to that question. I mean, I, I think it has something to do with Western narratives being quite preoccupied with the idea of the singular hero. This goes all the way back to our epic literature where there's always, you know, the singular person who saves the day often by slaughtering a whole bunch of other people. But it that doesn't well, actually, no. Okay, so maybe this is the connection, uh, because we tend to figure heroism through the imagery of war. And as we've seen recently with COVID, war is the major metaphor that our government is using to talk about this. And the other thing that, at least in the Anglophone West, goes along with the discourse of war is the discourse of heroism. And heroes are frequently figured in our media as singular figures. So maybe we've been taught if we are being taught to think of COVID as something about which we have to be heroes, about which we have to be courageous, maybe we're adopting the kind of inherent individualism of the West's ideal of the hero into our own thinking about what it means to behave during a pandemic, as opposed to, this isn't a place to be heroic, this is a place to be cooperative, and we can save our entire village if we do that. Also, that's not a boring story to tell. You would think it wouldn't be. But, you know, I was recently reading an article, and this was focused more on the Justinianic plague of, you know, the 6th, the 7th centuries into the, up to the, uh, through the 8th. And it's always popular, like, you hear this plague, it brings an end to the Roman world. I mean, it's, again, another example of collapsology. One of the things that this interdisciplinary team thinks is a cause is sort of the competition for research grants. And so you connect your plague, your pandemic, it's got to be big in terms of its social, political, economic impact, and it is, but then your solution to it similarly has to be big so you get the funding or something like that, which I thought was an interesting way to think about it that made some sense. <gasps> That's interesting. So we exaggerate our narratives of plague in order to support ourselves. <laughs> but what you're saying is narrative. And I mean, what I love about bringing us together is, okay, so Lorianne, tell me if this isn't fair, but sometimes some scientists think that they don't have narratives, they have facts. You know, what is our research showing, our quantitative evidence or something like that? But scientific discourse is a form of creating stories and narratives as much as we do that from the humanities. And so that is a part of saying, you know, well, why does your research matter? Why is it important? Why should you take this class on COVID-19? What are you going to carry forward from it? Right. In your field, what are you and your collaborators, what kind of specifics do you think the students, so we've said they'll bring in like the narratives of zombie movies or the games, but what else do you think they might have for assumption? I think the timeline of pandemics too, like that it's sort of easy to come up with a cure or a vaccine and the heroes in this story are going to be those scientists who come up with the vaccine and the, and the drug that will cure the virus and not realizing that these non-pharmaceutical interventions like social distancing and wearing face coverings that can help us um, slow down the bed, that we may not have a vaccine for many, many years. And so the heroes can be us. Like you said, this idea of doing these small actions, that these small actions can actually be 
especially when many people in the population do these small actions, that that can be really effective in slowing down disease spread. I feel like a related factor here, because Lorianne, I think you're, what you have described there is students' narrative assumptions not just about pandemic, but about medicine and what medicine is and what its role in society is. And that is something which was intentionally narratively constructed by doctors in the early 20th century, where they made a push to refigure themselves as scientists benefiting society. And that often you know, put laboratory medicine at the kind of center of medicine's public image. And public health was important, but it was almost shunted to the side as something which was still medical and still important, but wasn't as, it, it wasn't the kind of heroic profile medicine wanted to create for itself. Actually, in, in the late 19th century, you begin to get collections of biographies of great doctors who advanced medical science, particularly by finding cures. When our students think of medicine, I think that that's who they think of is that figure of the single heroic doctor who finds the cure for the thing. And our media absolutely reinforces this. All of my students have seen, for example, the TV show House, whose narrative conceit is the genius asshole doctor who manages to find the particular cure for a person when nobody else could. And whose scientific knowledge is kind of wrapped up in his ability to, to, to find that cure, or at least to find an explanation. So it's interesting that we don't, say, have a, a BBC TV series about Jon Snow, the guy who figured out that right. if we just, you know, um, like shut down the connections between sewage and the water pipes in London, we can severely cut down cholera outbreaks. Maybe, there, maybe there's a TV show in which Jon Snow figures and it isn't Game of Thrones, but I haven't seen one. I don't think cholera or dysentery or those other things are sexy enough for a TV show. I agree. <laughs> yeah. We need the consumptive narrative. <laughs> yeah. But that's also like, what does that mean to have a disease that is sexy? Because you're absolutely right. And that's fascinating. What counts as a sexy disease? That Like one that we can tell stories about. And I don't mean the kind of like tubercular beautiful woman that the 19th century was super into with her pale cheeks and languishing on couches what are the kinds of diseases that we like to tell stories about? I don't, I don't have a good answer. It's an interesting question. That is an interesting question, because I'm even thinking back to 2014 with the West African Ebola outbreak. And when there was a single case of Ebola imported into the United States, I mean, it just went all over the news and everybody was freaking out. I remember there was a survey done that said, if there was a vaccine for Ebola, would you take it? And something like 65% said yes. And just for, for context, our vaccine rate for seasonal influenza, which kills on average 36,000 people in the United States, our vaccination rate is around 45%. So even though no one had died of Ebola here in the United States, even though this was the very first case of Ebola, people were saying, yeah, I would get a vaccine and getting all sort of scared and panicky about this. And I think it's because Ebola is a sexy disease. I mean, it's, it, it, you get hemorrhaging and, and, and blood comes from your orifices in, in your body and it's highly infectious, but it's actually less contagious than, than 19, which spreads through the airborne route. So yeah, it's really interesting how just the visualization or people's imagination of what a disease looks like and how it affects the body, how that actually influences how people react mm-hmm. to, to a disease. To respond, I do think that that is really interesting. And I think that you're right to focus on 
the effect on the physical body is something that is an indicator of how I hate to keep using the word sexy. I mean, what's a, what's a better word for it? Um, narratively compelling a disease yeah. is. Ebola is exaggerated. And mm -hmm. maybe that's one of the reasons that people consider it so interesting. I'm trying to think of other diseases that would be as narratively interesting or diseases that, that aren't as narratively interesting too. I mean, I think that maybe there's also the kind of exoticization factor of Ebola coming out of like starting originally in Africa. And we can see that kind of weirdly exotic racist approach to COVID as well with, you know, Trump naming it the China virus, uh, people retelling what I think is a fairly common story about pandemics is that they start in the East and then sweep West in this weird kind of reverse colonization that the West seems to be very afraid of. And uh, I don't know what that does. <laughs> I was just going to say, and isn't it ironic that the United States is the epicenter of COVID-19? which yes. totally flies in the face of that narrative. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I don't know how we'll wrap this up, but I think one thing we could say to try to wrap the conversation would be that we've made a really strong case for students taking our classes, I hope, or for more people to think seriously about disease and response and about narratives. Of yeah. I think kind of being the intersection of our three disciplines, how it's important and helps you understand what's going on. Yeah, science never occurs in a vacuum and you need to understand the scientific elements of the disease as much as you need to understand the narrative and historical elements because all of those shape the way that we actually experience it. And uh, frankly, in our kind of day-to-day -day lives, sometimes the narratives are going to be the things we're exposed to even more than the science because we lack the expertise. Uh, so it's really important to understand who our influences are and resist them if necessary. Absolutely. Well Thank you for listening to this episode of COVID Convos. You can learn more about this podcast and the research being done at Marquette University by visiting the Research and Innovation website at marquette.edu. You can reach the podcast via email at covidconvos at marquette.edu. Music for this episode is Phase 2 by Zylo Zyko.